This program is brought to you by Resonance 104.4 FM. If you like what you hear and want to support our work, please make a donation at fundraiser.resonance.fm. You're listening to Panel Borders on Resonance 104.4 FM and DAB in London. I'm Alex Fitch, and this is Resonance's monthly show about comics, graphic novels, and sequential art. In today's program, I'm looking at biographical and autobiographical comics including interviews with two creators of books which tell stories of challenging lives. Later in the show, I'll be talking to Jonathan Sandler about converting his father's wartime memoirs into the graphic novel The English GI, a World War II graphic memoir. However, to start off with, I'm talking to cartoonist and designer Eliza Fricker, and we're discussing her graphic novel Can't Not Won't, a story about a child who couldn't go to school. In this book, Eliza draws on her own experiences, mixed with some of the language of humour cartoons, to tell her story of raising a child who suffers from pathological demand avoidance. PDA is a condition that Eliza has dealt with in a number of more academic books, and in the Q&A, which was recorded in front of a live audience at Cartoon County in Brighton, we're discussing the connections between her various books on PDA, finding humour in difficult situations, and turning autobiographical experience into a comic which can provide advice for other parents who are dealing with a similar situation. In both of tonight's interviews, unfortunately the room next door to where we were recording was quite boisterous, so you'll have to forgive the background noise. Okay, ladies and gentlemen, welcome to Cartoon County. Very glad to have Eliza Fricker as our guest, whose new book, Can't Not Won't, has literally just been published, hot off the proverbial press. The latest in her series of books looking at PDA, which is something I guess you can explain to our audience. Mm. But uh, welcome back to Cartoon County. Thanks. Uh, So I've just got a little presentation. It gives you a little overview of sort of the impetus to write what I write and draw what I draw um, and then we can have a chat and uh, you can ask me some questions. Uh, So my name is Eliza Fricker, Um, I'm an illustrator, author and uh, autistic uh, ADHD myself and also mother to an autistic child and I write and illustrate this blog called Missing the Mark about navigating the education system and autism. And much of my work is really about the systems that we're trying to navigate while looking after a child who has extra needs. So here you can see I've drawn myself laying exhausted under a whiteboard of various departments and systems of support that we are attempting to navigate when we are often sent around various departments with no one to guide or work alongside us to navigate or even marry up the departments. And what we're trying to do, while exhausted, frazzled and worried, is find a way through these various departments for help, consistency of help for our children, with no map, no flowchart of who to go to next, no guide, no idea. And uh, you can see here the, that I'm look, what I am actually looking for, understanding, individualised support, flexibility, 
and there's a postcard of me trying to reach my child and it says, wish you weren't here. And I often say, imagine if we tried to run our lives like the divisions and subdivisions of support systems. So at the top here, I've got some lanyards, which are one of the things I absolutely loathe. And uh, they say inclusion specialist support, interaction specialist support, SEN specialist teacher, ASC advisory teacher. And every school and local authority had their own divisions and subdivisions. And I thought, I'm going to do a little drawing here of, of if I communicated to my child how those people communicate to me. So there's my child saying, do you want to watch this with me? And I'm saying, your AST, ASC teacher will be able to advise you on the super suitability of that. Mum, can I have a drink, please? <laughs> I'm sorry, I'm the food prep coordinator. You need the refreshment support service. If you leave a message, Mum, can you get the dog? It's being annoying. You need to do this through the pug advisory service. We are not able to come in without going through them first. Combine this with phone calls we receive out of the blue, where we are not prepared but desperate to speak to someone, and we don't even have a pen. Repeating our child's complete history is re-traumatising and never see them again? Pointless. So consistency and continuity of relationships was what I was looking for when I was navigating the system. Not having to repeat myself over and over and relive difficult experiences to schedule in a call so we're prepared or even have a notebook and pen. And this is me, this is kind of a classic example of me sending a really angry email and not hearing anything and then getting a phone call out of the blue and this woman this actually did happen she knew nothing about what what was going on and i'm holding some cat sick and don't have a pen and i've got to go through everything all over again she didn't even have any notes on her um and then she was actually quite nice and she came around um to that to the house and we did some checklists and questionnaires about why didn't my child like school and she left and I never saw her again and I don't know who she was um, and I wouldn't have no idea how to contact her um, but you let these people in because you're worried if you don't let them in then you will seem obstructive to the system because over the years they made me a little bit cynical letting people into our home our safe space not because they were unkind or unpleasant, but it was disruptive. My child needed safety from relationships that were built up and invested, trust. This was what was important to my daughter's well-being. And this is a drawing I did of myself as a bouncer, and there's someone saying, please, I've got a ton of generic checklists and a jolly pencil. I know someone at CAMS. And I'm saying, no can do, your mate came last week, and Muggins here had to mop up your mess. And it's funny, well not funny, but I drew this analogy, I do like an analogy, of eating at a restaurant because what else, where else would you experience such service that many families do and that be okay? And this is me saying, I've been waiting ages to be served. And the waitress is saying, well, why don't you email us your order and we can see if we can get you a table in a few months' time? <laughs> This isn't good enough, I've waited ages, then the order was wrong, then it was cold. Well, you got to come to a restaurant and sit at a table, plenty of other people need that table, what makes you so special? Or me waiting and waiting for the pizza restaurant to pick up the phone. How do they get any customers? They never pick up, sod it, I'll just have pasta pesto. And then it arrives and it's one slice and it's freezing cold and I'm saying, well, it's better than nothing, I guess. But what we really want is to be seen, and this is through getting to know families. For most parents navigating the systems, this is a job that we don't want to be doing. We don't know how to do it and we don't get paid. 
So I would like to see more consistency of relationships, clear pathways of support, universal job titles, and that involves trauma-informed practice, clear communication practices, because many families, myself included, have experienced huge amounts of distress. And these systems, I'm sorry to say, have played a huge part. So never ask me to fill out a checklist. And lastly, this is all time I could be with my child and I'm not. And time is something we never get back. Thank you. And so I was just going to say when I started doing this, um, it was really to process my experiences. But from that, I have written my own books and books for other people. And I also support other families going through similar mm. and training for professionals to try and do better. So. Very good. So just to kind of contextualise what you're talking about, can you explain kind of briefly to the audience what uh, pathological demand avoidance is? Uh, it's a really lovely term, um, which um, the word pathological is not something anyone wants in their, in their <laughs> description. Um, what it is, is it, it, it's part of the autism spectrum, um, but it's just more anxiety. Um, a lot of people are now talking about it's actually autism, but with trauma. Um, and so what you need is a very, that person to feel safe needs to feel in control. So it's a very different way of parenting and supporting a child. It's a very holistic way. So it has to be very child-centered, strength-based. But really, as we talk about this, we're sort of saying this is actually what everyone who's neurodivergent needs. Mm. Um, but it, it, it's really just that this child will feel that real deep sense that they need to feel in control. So you have to work really collaboratively, non-hierarchically. Mm. Um, yeah, so it's quite a different tra than the traditional parenting. Yeah. Um, when you last came to Cartoon County a few years ago, uh, your previous graphic novel had recently come out. I think it was dealing with your mother's illness. Yeah. Um, so it, it really feels unfortunate that you've had to write another one about another kind of traumatic <laughs> kind of like aspect of uh, a family life. Yeah, yeah. I mean, she, she's doing well, but I guess it's the systems that get yes. the same thing, isn't it? So in terms of kind of transitioning from that book to the various proje uh, projects you've done for Jessica Kingsley, uh, how did it come about? Were you just kind of doodling cartoons to kind of help yourself deal with uh, the process mm. um, of your child or did you start writing stuff for them? I mean, what was the kind of order of things? Uh, so I started writing it, um, my daughter actually had a breakdown. So I was at home with her and full-time carer and it was really to process those years and years of, of, of what we had gone through mm. as a family. And, and, you know, within that, I often say that, yes, it was help, to help me process um, it, but it was also, you know, there was so much in there that was absolutely, utterly absurd. Mm. So I, I think it just needed to be shared, really, that those experiences. And we were very much told that we were kind of an enigma of a family by professionals. They'd never seen this before. And it was actually talking to Corinne about it. And she was like, oh, you should do... I showed someone that I work with and she, she said she's going through similar. Like, you should put it out there as a blog. And I mm. did. Um, and there are now, I think it's 30,000 on my Facebook page wow. of families who are going through exactly the same. And right. actually this, you know, I dedicated the book to other families because all the stories are so similar. 
um, and, and it's become much more of a generic thing over time. It's kind of all of our experiences. Yeah. And in terms of kind of collecting the cartoons that you've compiled into Cart Not Want, how many of them are kind of the next few hours after something has happened? How often are you looking into the past to think, actually, I'd like to tell that anecdote, I've missed it out? Where, um, does, where does that kind of um, structure come from? Yeah, they're normally quite far back. Um, but sometimes things will pop up. Like I was doing a consult this morning with, um, with an autistic woman who's got PDA children, and we had a conversation. I was thinking, oh, yes, and that kind of drove me to do, do a quick little drawing and write something. So, you know, it, it can be both. I think this stuff is quite historical, this mm. specific, but, you know, the stuff that's coming out now is often inspired by talking to other people. Nice. Um, so your book, The Family Experience of PDA, came out first, and that's far more text-heavy. Mm. Were you doing this, the two projects kind of side by side? Did one kind of inform the other? Yeah, so uh, Can't Not Won't is really missing the mark, so it's the blog that I was ah. illustrating. And then I was asked by Jessica Kingsley to write The Family Experience of PDA, and initially I was thinking, really? Do I know that much? And then I was thinking, well, yeah, I guess I have 12 years of daily living it. So, yeah, so that, that, was, that was done. They were kind of working alongside each other, really. Mm. I mean, in a way, that feels kind of like doing a bit of creative research, that with uh, the family experience of PDA, it's like you're writing the academic version, and then with Can't Not Won't, you're doing the kind of like cartoon response to it. Mm. I mean, in terms of kind of doing them side by side, did you feel you were doing a sort of left brain, right brain thing that one is more kind of allowing you to express it artistically while the other one where you're thinking of the right words to use, it causes you to be a bit more sort of self-critical or more sort of analytical? Yeah, I think, I think Can't Not Won't is definitely something that was done for myself and to be done therapeutically. Mm. Um, it was also a, a kind of... A, I'd like to say polite two fingers up. It was there was rage in that. There was mm. rage in, to to get me to do that, and and I needed to put that somewhere because, you know, no child should end up having a breakdown and unable to access things for two years. That's not okay. Yeah. You know, these are these are environments that bang on about safeguarding, and yet we have children being harmed continually. Yeah. Um, so yeah, it was very much a kind of rage there to get that out, and then. Um, and, and then I think with the family experience of PDA, it, it, was, it was supportive and helpful and practical and it was giving families a chance to work in a way that works for their children because I think with the systems, the systems are so outdated. Um, most families that I speak to are really progressive in how they're looking at things. Um, someone that I work with, Heidi Mavir, she's just written a book herself that is now... I mean, it's just gone through the route, like it's selling so many copies, which is a really neuroaffirmative book. And she was saying the other day, it's like a pincer movement because we've got all these people here that are just coming at this, these systems saying, look, these are old systems. This is not neuroaffirmative practice. Mm. And all the parents are like way ahead. They know about masking and monotropism and all these things. And it's the professionals and the systems, unfortunately, that have got a lot of catching up to do. Yeah. And that's kind of the thing that I, I take from your book, that the most frustrating aspect of it is that all of the systems in place that claim that they're going to do everything to help students are just box ticking exercises. They're all full of all this kind of legal uh, mumbo jumbo uh, and jargon. But when it actually comes to individuals' experiences, 
when they claim you know that every school is catering to individual experiences that just doesn't seem to be the case at all they're just not able to i mean it's you know i i was lucky to get funding to do a podcast where i made a program talking to various people that work in the system or have left the system or been impacted by the system um, and I think what, what most people are saying is we have to move away from the standardised system and what's happened is actually it's got worse. Mm. So the, the pressure from central government is attendance, come what may. There's one bit in my book where, um, so I've got an afterword by uh, someone from the podcast who was a Senko school governor. Um, and at one, one point I was told by a professional, um, just being there is enough. And I took that to mean, okay, thanks, that's kind of nice. You've said that because, you know, we don't have to worry about all the academic stuff. And then he actually pulls that out in the afterword of the book and he says, where have we got to if we just want this child in there, not able to do anything? Mm. What's the point? And, and this is the problem that the system is so fixated on attendance. Um, that that is what the bottom line, you know, just get them income what may. And I've heard some utterly, I mean, we kind of, we were, we were quite fortunate in a way because some of the stories I've heard are absolutely awful of children being, you know, manhandled off their parents to get them in. Wow. Um, yeah, really, really bad things have happened to families to tip that attendance. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I mean, in describing this book and talking about the content of it and the things that you go through, it sounds like it could be kind of dark, depressing and traumatic. Mm. But the thing is, as a cartoonist, um, and maybe this takes lots and lots of work, but you come across as naturally funny. Um, so when you, when you are kind of drawing cartoons about these events, I mean, do you do it a number of times until kind of the humour comes out or is it something that literally comes naturally to you? No, I think it, it's there and I think it, perhaps it is my coping mechanism. Mm. Um, I'm not sure. I think it's something certainly that was in my house growing up. My dad was a political cartoonist. It was always flipping things and looking at the absurdity of it. And there is so much absurdity. I mean, there's one bit in, in the book where I think we've all been asked to go to a parenting group and we're all sitting around and we've got to throw a ball into a bin and say how our morning was. And you're thinking, <laughs> and I didn't know what to say because I'm very awkward in a lot of situations. So I didn't know what to say. And then there's people going around saying, you know, my child tried to strangle me this morning. And I think I said something like, I'm a bit lonely or so. I didn't know what to say. You know. And it's ridiculous. And at the end of that, we were given um, a scented candle and told to do some self-care. Wow. And, you know, <laughs> I mean, there's lots there to... Yeah. To <laughs> and there was, I did, it's actually in the book, there's one of my favourite bits is that scene of that woman that came around, the mental health worker, whatever she was. Um, <laughs> I told my daughter she was coming round and my daughter was looking out the window and this woman was crossing the street with this... Um, very ethnic-y, it said Tunisia, this bag, she had like Hessian bag. And we saw her crossing the road and my daughter looked out the window and she went, I bet that's her. <laughs> so the book compiles numerous strips from your blog. Uh, are they in the same order they originally came out or did you kind of rejig the order so that they kind of flow in a more kind of narrative-y way uh, when collected? Yeah, we, they're, they're very much rejigged. So um, we used um, some of the stock phrases um, mm. that, that I'd been 
told through through this and we we put those through and we just made it more sequential because when I was doing Missing the Mark as a blog it was really just whatever popped in whatever rage I was feeling <laughs> that day or you know so it wasn't in an order on Missing the Mark um, so yeah we definitely put it in the order of, of events and sequences of, mm. of how it went which is ironic that in a way doing it uh, so kind of live uh, on the blog it feels like you were kind of following in your dad's footsteps mm. so for some of his political cartoons he probably would have only had a couple of days to react to something that was going on to the news and put it down on paper I mean have, did you you know see any kind of parallels between his work and yours um, probably the fact that I had a child at home and I remember I was at home with him a lot because I have now realised I didn't go to school all the time either, so I had issues with, with um, attending school, um, which is something that came up on my own autism diagnosis. So I was often at home, sort of in the background, trying to get, you know, playing ping pong while he's trying to get like a, a, an editorial sketch off to the Telegraph or the Guardian in an hour's time. And yeah, so it's very similar in that sense. But And, and that's something why I dedicated the book to him as well because that was a re was a really good positive reminder for me when I was at home I never felt that resentment from my dad you know mm. he was always very creative and imaginative and very funny when we we were younger and he was at home with us and we were all bored together and making up boring silly games and you know that was something I kind of kept with me when I was at home with my daughter yeah um and presumably along the way as you have been sharing them uh, with say it was 30,000 people yeah. <laughs> how much feedback have you got and did it does that become overwhelming in a way yeah I mean it's it is hard to keep up with stuff and it you know it is difficult I mean I do people do pay to have our sessions now so one-to-one -one sessions but it you know it's difficult when you're getting long heartfelt messages and you've now got you know I've got to have a generic response that I'm sorry I can't respond to all these you know it is difficult or you know, I still post things, but I can't interact with it like I used to. But it, I, I do notice, I think people interact with each other on there, which is quite nice. But yeah, it's just, it's very difficult to keep up with it all, really. Yeah. Cool. Um, does anybody in the audience have any questions for Eliza? Uh, how does your daughter feel about being She's very happy to receive a percentage of the royalty checks. Uh, she's fine because I keep her name out of it. It's a different name. It's a very generic drawing. And um, this came up the other day, actually, when I was doing an online event. It's, I was saying then, it, it's one element. There's so much that isn't here. You know, I see a lot of people who post lots and lots of pictures of their kids and even you know they might cover their face or but I don't po no one would know what her interests were or anything about you know I keep all that really really separate so you know she's she's happy with a little bit of money bunged her way after <laughs> you know these uh, yeah well and also before we started recording you suggested actually the way that you draw her has become more generic because yeah. it's no longer entirely autobiographical it's actually you want to talk to everyone who's going through that experience yeah they're not they're not really me and her anymore they're kind of representing the parent and the child really uh yeah so schools dealing with attendance being paramount but then also not knowing how to deal with people who don't turn up and how to 
triage that. Mm. Yeah. No, it's and, and this is something working with the community that I do, we're very, very passionate about this because a lot of us as well, being late diagnosed ourselves, we realised that we went through our life covering up that level of distress we were feeling. And, and all that does is set you up to be an adult who doesn't express themselves or isn't able to articulate when things are difficult or unhealthy or even dangerous. So it's mm. really, really important that we recognise when we've had enough and we need a break. And that environment is absolutely and utterly overwhelming. And I did a big post actually the other day about attendance and I was saying I was very lucky because I had a dad at home that he did allow me to have days off and it was the 1980s so it didn't seem to get pulled up but what it's meant is as an, as an adult I know when I've had enough and I know when I need to rest and you know burnout is huge for autistic people um, and and masking is huge so what schools are basically saying is you know just get on with it and and cover up your distress and and that leads to burnout and, and trauma so it's yeah it's it's not great. Mm. I mean, a lot of schools even have in, in the reception, in the office area when you walk in, they have the attendance, the percentage, and it's colour-coded wow. with the prediction of where your GCSE, where you'll get, how many GCSEs you'll get oh. because you're not attending. You know, this whole idea that everything is, is just pressure, 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 pressure. Yeah. Has it gotten better or has it gotten worse or do you have to now game the system in order to cope with it? Um, it's got worse. I mean, I think what's happened, well, it, because the attendance drive has, has been really ramped up. So there was lots and lots of stuff during COVID that, you know, we were going to look after these children coming back into that system after we don't know the impact of what was going on for them while they were in, the, in their homes for that long without access to other human beings. They were going to be given a lot of support, supposedly. That hasn't happened, and what has happened is more children are now struggling. We haven't, I mean, I work with a trauma therapist. She said, no one's dealt with this. No one. <laughs> you know, um, we don't know what the impact of that is going to be, but certainly forcing children in is, 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 is going to be impactful. And I think probably what you've got alongside that is that parents are changing the way they parent. You know, we don't parent like we used to. Mm. We are a lot more child-centred. We do validate their experiences a lot more. And we are more understanding of emotions. And and I think that that doesn't now align with that education system, which is very much just get them in. Um, and that book, Square Pegs, is a fantastic, it's a huge book with, I think there's 50 contributions from professionals. Mm. Um, about you know square pegs basically being squeezed into the into these systems and the impact of that when did i start i guess it was probably speaking to other people working with this community more and more and then just that ease and comfortable how comfortable i felt with them and then a few of them were like oh do you think you could be adhd do you think you could be autistic and i think i'd always had this sense of feeling different um and how comfortable I felt with these people just gave me, I just felt okay to be more myself and start to unmask and start to open up. And initially, I wasn't even going to have the assessment. I was like, I don't need the assessment. You know, I can do all this and figure myself out. Um, but then I got the opportunity to have a free one um, with a neuroaffirmative practice. And it was, a, I was amazed at how brilliant it was because I think I'd been 
I was very aware of the kind of deficit medical model, but this was very different. So it was still using the diagnostic manual, but it was done in a very um, neuroaffirmative way. And, and so it was, it was amazing. And the things that came out of it that I'd never thought about because they were able to work with me and help me to see those things um, and look at those experiences, um, yeah, it was brilliant. And it's just being able to unmask after years of trying to fit in and feel like I had to feel, fit in um, and not having to do that anymore. It's just, you just feel so much more at ease and at peace with yourself. It's, yeah, I can't, I can't say how amazing it is to kind of go through it, but also, you know, it's difficult because you realise about those difficulties and, and, and those challenges that you had and you kind of buried them and tried to get on with them and yeah, it, it is sad and I think my, I don't know, I think, well my mum's, only, even though we talk all the time, she's only sort of taking it on board now Chris Packham's done this heli programme about it, so um, yeah, but you know, they're, they're pretty, they're, they've been pretty kind of good, good, good with it as well and yeah. Hmm. You just see it everywhere, though. Once you get your diagnosis, mm -hmm. you're just, you see it everywhere. <laughs> <laughs> when do you find uh, time to draw, or do you just draw when you feel you need to? I tend to get up pretty early, so I tend to, if I'm really working on something like a book, then I, I usually get up at six, and I work before other stuff comes in. So that's my real quiet time to do it. Um, but I will do it at different times as well. You know, I'm ADHD, so I could sit there for four hours on my phone and do nothing, and then I'll get a burst and a hyper-focus for a few hours and do it at a random time. So it, it, it works for me. It's really nice. I'm not stuck in doing it at a set time, but the early mornings, if I do have a book, it is my golden, golden time to do it. And then, um, yeah, and then, uh, you know, doing the other stuff usually comes in in the day. At the, at the normal hours, so I fit around that. And do you find um, you know, that, that if something's really got to you, that you have to? Yeah. Have to then go. I have to. to. Draw that. Like today, I had to do that post, which was a. Uh, it was called the turncoat. So it was about I'd been I'd done a consult in the morning with a woman in Australia, and we had been talking. She was autistic, and her children were autistic, and wow. something came out of that, and I. And, I, and I'd been talking to a friend over the weekend about how often when you're ADHD and autistic, your processing is different. Um, and, and you'll often get this thing where you, because you're masking as well, when you come to a decision about something, it can come out in a complete meltdown because you've been holding it in, you've been masking, saying you're fine. Meanwhile, it's all internal and then it comes out. And so many times you'll be, people will be met with, you, you're met with shock, people will say, you know, where's this come from? You said you like doing that. Why are you suddenly now saying you don't? So this is why I did this kind of the turncoat and I, that was based off talking to that woman today where I just thought I've got to get this down. Um. Nice. Fine. Do you get the same sort of crisis of confidence and self-belief? So when you're making your comics, do you sometimes just sit and look at them and feel that you're not able this is not good, and how do you, how do you push past that and remind yourself that these are good, good products, good things that we're making? 
so do I ever sort of have a wobble, you mean, about what I'm doing and if it's good enough? Yeah, I think there's always an element of imposter syndrome, isn't there, where you just, you know, you, you do have that self-doubt. And, you know, I do work with a lot of professionals as well. So, I mean, that's not as bad as it used to be. I used to have a real thing because I... I did struggle with anything academic. Um, I, I, you know, I don't have a degree. Um, I used to feel that much more when I was with professionals with proper jobs and degrees, but less less so now, really, because I realise that we bring different things. You know, I work with someone who, you know, I really regard her quite highly professionally in her work, but then she can't draw pictures and she can't put it, you know, I'll send her ideas for what we do for our work. And she's like, yes, brilliant, because that means, you know, and and so that sort of dissipated over time where I realised, okay, well, I just bring something else. I see things differently and I bring it a different element to this stuff because professionals cannot, they are not, visual a lot of the like when I work at local authorities my my goodness their their visual stuff is woo yeah <laughs> yeah no, I think what you're talking about <laughs> local authority. I think there's so much it's it's so funny isn't it that you an autistic person is the ones with the me, it's the one with the metaphor the one with the analogy <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Analogies. Like, when did you when did you realise that sort of people were actually taking you seriously about this stuff? That you were kind of at the vanguard of a conversation that was happening. I don't know, really. I'm not sure. I think when I probably it was quite interesting when I started getting invited in to do stuff for local authorities, um, because that thing that I showed you at the beginning is a presentation that I do for local authorities. They asked me to come in about sort of improving services. Local authorities are so into this co-production thing at the minute; it's ridiculous. So often they kind of give me a seat at, at the table in some some capacity. But um, yeah, I don't know really. Um, yeah, I don't, I don't, I don't know, it's a difficult one to answer really, because they wouldn't actually say anything, like, you know, particularly, I don't think, they don't say anything, yeah. I think, I think you are, you're really at the vanguard of the conversation that's happening at the moment, and I think it must be very, very empowering to parents to, to have you, re- I mean, I've spoken to parents who it's been empowering to have you represent their experience, they've gone to GPs and gone, look at that, mm. that's... That's my morning kind of thing. I think every, I think this is the thing that for most families, it's they just want to feel validated, and that's something that doesn't happen when you're going into school and saying, Look, it is absolutely horrific at home, and school is saying, Well, they're fine when they're here. I mean, that just, what does that do to a family when they're really struggling and in crisis? So, yeah, I think it validates a lot of their experiences and gives them that voice because sometimes. You know, a lot of the stuff I do is saying it's so hard to explain to people. It's even hard to d- explain it to your, sometimes your partner or your family, what is actually going on. So, you know, if it gives people something, if they just can go like that and give it to someone, then that's great. Uh, yeah, I mean, it's 
it's good you know it's a good it's a good turnover i don't know what actual numbers i know that can't not won't's on its third reprint and it's not been out a week so that's pretty good uh i think that's parents buying it for hundreds of professionals though like lobbing it into schools (laughs) so yeah i mean the publisher are really you know they're very happy um they enjoy giving me more work um and yeah so that you know they they're always looking at it and seeing what the sort of interaction is and it's great you know because the the one that's out next year thumbsucker is you know i don't know if it's niche as such but i was like will they go for this but they have you know which is my own experiences growing up um undiagnosed autistic in the 1980s so there's lots of drawings of Bergerac and this hobo and I didn't know whether they'd go for it but they have so I'm like great (laughs) Eliza Fricker thank you very much thank you To read more cartoons by Eliza Fricker and find more info about her podcasts and latest illustrations please go to missingthemark.blog And for more info about the various books by Eliza that she's illustrated for Jessica Kingsley Publishing, please go to uk.jkp.com. In the second of today's interviews, which are both themed around the subject of turning people's own experiences of challenging lives into graphic memoir and comics, I'm talking to Jonathan Sandler who took his father's wartime memoirs and his father's unusual experience of being a Brit enlisted into the US Army and turned these into the graphic novel The English GI World War II Graphic Memoir. In this book, combined with a fair amount of his own research to add extra detail to his father's memoirs, locating the experiences in specific geographical locations, Jonathan worked with the artist Brian Bicknell to turn his father's experiences into a full graphic novel which details, as the cover suggests, a Yorkshire schoolboy's adventures in the United States and Europe. As with the previous interview, the Q&A was recorded at Cartoon County, a monthly meeting for Sussex-based cartoonists, which is recorded in the back room of a pub in Brighton, so you'll have to forgive the background noise. So this book is adapted from your father's memoirs. I guess You know, he died a number of years before this was turned into a graphic novel. But while he was alive and when you first, you know, kind of found out about his uh, history during the war, had you already started to think about adapting it in some way for a larger audience? Not really. Uh, I think it... I, I try to trace back how this actually happened. I've always been into comics and graphic novels, but not, not... Hugely, but I've, I've my, 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 I mean, my favourite growing up was was um, Tintin and Asterix. I just loved the way that they played out. And then a few years ago, I started getting back into graphic novels again, um, and went on a course. And just uh, and that's when I got into people like Adrian Tomin and sort of more mature uh, graphic novelists. And um, yeah, I think it was just sort of at the back of my mind. And then I think it was all about two years ago, um, my son was very into World War II, started watching documentaries. And it was just sort of one evening, I sort of, well, I told him, well, look, you're, you're my grandfather, your great-grandfather, he had quite an interesting war story and he actually wrote it down and it published, well, it self-published a book. It, it didn't, it wasn't really a commercial book. It was more just for, for friends and family. 
And I thought to myself, this is a really good story here. And I thought, actually, this would be an amazing graphic novel. Slept on it, woke up next morning. Am I actually, I, I, I'm going to turn this into a graphic novel. I don't know quite how that's going to happen, but I just mm. sort of had this premonition that I was going to do it. And of course, it was during that lockdown period where we had a little bit more time. And um, it sort of went from there. Mm. Nice. Well, and, and it's also, you know, we were talking about this uh, before we went live on air and started recording, that um, when people think about kind of war comics, uh, there are British strips like Battle, there's Commando, which is still amazingly still being published in the current day. But in terms of uh, Second World War graphic novels, there's not actually that much out there. No. Um, um, and particularly your, your dad's story about being uh, an English teenager in America who gets drafted to join the American war effort and also you know, a Jew and that's something that's inscribed on his dog tags which we can talk about later. Again that's an even more unique story that hasn't been really committed to print. Sure I mean I, I think um, you know, just going into the whole, the first thing I, I did, I had this project I knew I was going to do a World War II graphic novel and I went out to the park one day, I was sort of discussing it with someone as you did during the lockdown and that was it Someone said, oh, have you, have you read the book Mouse? And I said, like, I haven't even heard of the book Mouse, which I felt embarrassed to say now. That, uh, so I immediately ordered it, on, uh, ordered it. It came the next day and I started reading that. And there's actually, I'll, I'll just go up on screen, there was, there was about four particular graphic novels that really appealed to me. Um, one of them is, is about the Japanese, is about George Takai, who was, people may remember, was, he was in Star Trek. But actually, he, he had a really interesting World War II experience with Japanese. And he was, he was Japanese and he was interred during the war in, in mm. the United States. And that was a story that hadn't been told that much you know, in, the, uh, in the narrative. And he, he, I mean, it wasn't. He, he, he did the sort of the memoir part, but that was turned into a great graphic novel. And, and then there was a couple of other ones that are beautiful books where I recommend. One is called Two Generals by Scott Chandler about his own grandfather, again, a memoir um, about uh, uh, his grandfather who was part of the Canadian Army in D-Day. And then, interestingly, Alan's War. Mm. And that, this is a book probably not many people have heard of. It, it's, it's about someone in the US Army. And interestingly, he didn't fight a single day in battle. Hmm. Um, so the, it, the book is more about the humdrum mm. of war, because it's not, you know, Often we think of war, it's battles and, and all these cinematic experiences, what we've sort of grown up on. But it's actually, in Alan's War, they get into the much more mm. of the minutiae of mm. just being a soldier and, you know, the unglamorous day-to-day -day life that yeah. goes on. Yeah. And actually, it's interesting that you mention Alan's War because uh, Emmanuel Guiba's other book, uh, The Photographer, is a project that kind of reminded me um, of your graphic novel because in that he goes on tour with Medicine Sans Frontières um, in various war zones and incorporates uh, the photographs taken by the photographer that he's kind of following on his journey into the text. And while you kind of keep those two aspects separate, you have the photographs at the back and then the comics at the front, it still feels like, you know, this is not only a graphic novel that documents history in terms of kind of drawings but also incorporates you know the also the photos as well of the time 
just so that you can say, look, this is actually what happened. Mm, no, and absolutely. I, you know, I find that really fascinating to have both within the same covers of the same project. I mean, I, I suppose I should probably just 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 sort of explain a little bit about the book and, and mm. why it's why I felt that it was worth worth publishing um, and, and going forward with it. So, so my grandfather, uh, he grew up in, he had a very happy childhood in, in Leeds and he went to school, he went to a school called Leeds Grammar School um, and he was 17 years old in 1939. And the other was in a very fortunate position that he, he the, the school, there was, there was a school trip for 17 year olds in the north of England. Uh, to go to the United States and Canada. So he took this trip in 1939, in the summer of 1939, and he arrived in New York at the end of the trip. And um, just as, you know, as we all know, war broke out the very start of September 1939, and um, he couldn't get home. And suddenly this fairly innocent 17-year-old was, was trapped albeit in a safer place, mm. but he was trapped from his family and um, he really had to grow up quickly because this was, uh, obviously we now know the length of the war, he just didn't know whether he was going to see his family again, mm. he didn't know whether he was going to, uh, you know, he didn't know what, 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 what was going to happen next and mm. the story takes him from, from his, um, you know, it's a coming of age story, it takes him all the way through the war and he does eventually joined the United States Army mm. as an Englishman and he does come back to, to fight in the war and that's why I sort of went for quite a simplistic title but <laughs> the English GI mm. and, and one of the things I really wanted to capture in the book um, was the magic of New York in the 1940s mm. he was in the metropolis of New York uh, as a fairly provincial young boy and this is where jazz theater where this was this was the mecca of all that in those days and, and I felt that he and, 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 and he just he absolutely adored the theatre and, 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 and he just he, you know, he, he really came of age there but I, I then had this like, how do I capture all that in this book because that, that for me it was certainly the first part of the book where he's sort of living in New York was, was, mm. was something that was quite important for me mm. um, well I mean there are loads of uh, really interesting kind of aspects of culture um, that the book, you know, touches on because he was growing up, um, you know, had his formative years at that time. I mean, one of which, I guess, to use a very modern term, is the intersectionality of it all. You know, that he talks about seeing um, black performers on stage uh, in New York. He talks about fighting alongside other black GIs um, in the war, but then being ashamed that when they came home afterwards, they were still being treated as second-class citizens. And again, I think that's an aspect of the war that perhaps isn't commented on. Absolutely. As much, you know. I mean, he, he, his whole sort of uh, world view was, was uh, he actually hated war. I mean, he, he was a bit mm. of a pacifist. Uh, uh, you know, his political views were of the left after the war just because of, you know, he saw how bad war was. And there was nothing, there was nothing glamorous about it. There's, and I don't think the book sort of... Um, you know, we don't go into the politics of it, but you know, he comes out of it just thinking it's a really nasty, horrible thing, war, and and, he, and yeah, it does highlight that. I mean, there there there, there was you know, black uh, African American soldiers were not allowed to fight alongside the white soldiers. It was it, it was bizarre to think, and, and he just couldn't sort of believe that. And, and he really wanted to get across in his book 
um, you know how you know, he saw Louis Armstrong live on stage in New York, and that it was just mm. such a you know, and and you know New York at that time he felt was much more cosmopolitan than, mm. than it was, of course, in Yorkshire in in in, in, in that era. Mm. So I mean, I, I can sort of yeah. give a give a little inkling into. So this is my my grandfather in 1939. Um, that's him with his brother, his younger brother Max, and his younger sister Sonia. So. He, he was, um, that was photograph. So I didn't have a huge amount of photographs to go with. Mm. Um, you know, obviously, the, you know, I, I started the book and thought, well, I'll, I'll dig out all the photos. And there was a few, but, um, and I suppose the next challenge um, that I had uh, was hiring an illustrator. Mm. Or, or, or was I going to do it myself? <laughs> now, I, I, do, um, I do like to draw, but I, I didn't, and didn't quite think I had the yeah I mean to, to do a graphic novel is is, is that you've got to be you know uh, my, hat, my hat goes off to anyone that can that can pull it off <laughs> it's a, it, it is a lot of, of you know this so I didn't really know where to start so I, I I sent an email out onto a website and about 70 people sort of flooded me uh, all around the world and, and I didn't really know what I was going to do and and there was one illustrator from, from America, because uh, I was overwhelmed, and he just said, look, this is an interesting project. Let's, let's go with it. Mm. Um, I'm happy to help you. So what we did um, was uh, the process that we used was, well, I started off, I just gave him the first page of the book. I said, here it is. <laughs> come, come up with something. <laughs> and I was quite naive in that sense. And he, and he, and he gave me, and he, and he came back a couple of days later. And I looked at it and I thought, this isn't what I wanted. And, and that's the, def you know, in life, expectation, reality, you know. Mm. So I thought, well, I don't going to give up just yet. Mm. What I'm going to do is I'm going to micromanage it a little bit and photograph and draw out what I think. And I'll come on and I'll show some of the, um, some of the sketches myself. I was going to mock it all up mm. and frame by frame, because and, and I respect, yeah, we didn't have a huge budget, he didn't have much time, so I didn't want to waste too much time on rework, and, and that's, that's how we sort of went from there, and that first page, mm. when it did come back, was absolutely what I wanted, it was, cool. a, it was one of the first pages of the book, they were just leaving L Liverpool in 1939, and he's with his family, they were going on a ship called the Arcadia, and they had it all drawn out, and, and, and it just, it was magical, and, and um, wanted to enjoy the experience. Well, yes, I mean, I was going to ask, you know, about the process of taking your grandfather's memoir and, you know, working out which bits she wanted to dramatise. I mean, did you sort of photocopy his entire book and then go through it with marker pens saying, this section would be great for description, this section would be great for dialogue? You know, I, I, I sort of went, did it in a very incremental way. Rather than going, you know, typically you would go through the whole thing and plan it out. I didn't do that. I just right. went through it literally chronologically increment. And then, of course, we and because I wanted to just sort of almost enjoy the whole experience. Mm. I, it was as though I was reliving his experience. So I think we we come to a scene quite early on. Um, and he says in the book, he's, me, he, he's he's in New York. He doesn't know where to go. Mm. And um He's going to, and he, he, there's a family that, called the Efron family that he's going to meet up with. 
and um, he goes to meet up with them in a lobby in a hotel in Manhattan. I didn't know which hotel that was. Mm. So I just did, well, let's research. And there's a hotel called the Algonquin Hotel on East 44th Street in Manhattan. And they had a beautiful picture of this lobby. And I just thought, well, that's <laughs> a good scene. That, you know, th this is, and then I, the next thing I did is I sort of tried to draw it up as best ah, as I could. Okay. You know, I didn't have much, I just sort of, you know, and I said to the artist, uh, I said to Brian, you know, do something along that side this, but rather than just giving him the photograph, I wanted to sort of place it myself, make mm. sure you've got people in the background. Get, it's about the details for me. Mm. And, and he came back with this scene. Mm. And, you know, again, it's having the little details of the dress and the signage and the lamps and every little thing about um, yeah. was important to me. It wasn't just the... The, the, he said he was more into drawing people. I said, people's important, but the actual detail <laughs> of the places is for me just as important. It, for, for, that was sort of my obsession with, with, with the project. And, and then we, we sort of evolved through this. But then it's funny, I, I yeah. went to New York um, in October and it was nothing to do with my book. I, I was going on a family trip and um, lo and behold, we're staying at a hotel. On 44th Street, <laughs> and I looked next. Well, I sort of did know beforehand. Uh, we were next door to the Algonquin Hotel. My kids said, um, "Oh, this is where Grandpa Bernard went." Um, maybe, and it's almost become. You know how it is in in the films; they adapt certain scenes, and and then it becomes the truth. And then you're like, "Well, actually." So, um, but no, it could have been any hotel. But then I, I decided, you know, I wasn't going to. I wanted those little details, and, and mm. this is actually quite a fame. I've, I've since discovered this is a very famous hotel in New York that's that's got um, uh, you know, got quite a lot of history. So I was glad I, I chose that hotel. Mm. Um, but yeah, that that and, and and of course the sign's still the same. And and yeah, we I, I went through this process continually. Mm. Um, you know, he was we went on the tube for the first time, <laughs> and 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 the thing is, there was there are so many images of New York in the 1940s online. So there was quite mm. a a lot of inspiration. But it um, reminds me a bit, particularly, I mean, uh, as a Jewish creator, it seems particularly apt, of a film like Zelig, where you're taking actual moments from history, uh, and in that film, Woody Allen is like superimposed into, you know, old fashioned footage. It, so here you're taking your protagonist and inserting him into images from the day, which I think is really interesting. It, 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 yeah, it, it, it was exactly that sort of how it went. And, and, and I, I'll just. Uh, a few, and again, he, he's on the subway, and we, he, this hustle and bustle of, of, the, of the New York, you know, he'd never been to mm. New York before, and, and suddenly he was exposed to this. And, and then in terms of the sort of the process of laying it all out on the page, I mean, I, I've got illustrators here today. Um, I, just for, for the purposes of, uh, you know, just to make it quick, you know, I, I, this was such a gigantic task to do this book. Mm. I would lay out, well, I, this is where I think they would go, and he would, he tended, uh, Brian tended to just do do as I asked, which was sort of the, you know, if you don't want to be, because, <laughs> you know, occasionally he would take something and think, well, I'll adapt it, but we, we you know, just through budget and time, we, we did all of our correspondence by email. Mm. I would sort of send him these, the images and, and the mock-ups, and then a week later he would give it to me, and he'd do a round of of editing and, and that was and then we had to move on you know it was mm. it was quite a mm. long process we had a, a lot to get through um 
but yeah, I, I, I got, you, you sort of, and then again, you never, pho photographs don't always do it. You know, you mm -hmm. look online and they don't quite, you know, you, so you sort of play around with the image, oh, I want a taxi there and I mm. have to find, so, so, it, so it was a bit of cutting and pasting and, and just trying to find mm. that, that right way. Well, I mean, I really like uh, Brian's art. I think, you know, and I'll talk about that in a minute, but it's interesting that in the book, you're only credited as editor. I think you do yourself a disservice. Yeah, I, I mean, it should say adaptation and thumbnails. Yes, by. exactly. <laughs> it, 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 I, I, yeah, I was fairly new to it. Um, I, I probably would have called myself an author. I always felt like I was, a, I was the producer mm. <laughs> of the book. You know, the, the, you know, you're, you're, uh, you know I suppose um, a lot of people have this when they do their own uh, books or memoirs or their real vision is to have a film. <laughs> now that's clearly never, or it's not never going to happen, but so, but this is sort of the, 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 the I say a very fun and easier way of getting yeah. that across. So, so this was my way of sort of almost being the movie producer and mm. trying, to, trying to get that across. But it, I mean, it's funny though, because I was talking uh, earlier about how you're literally inserting your grandfather into pre-existing kind of photographs of the time. And Brian's style has a kind of flavor of animation to it. Quite often the characters have kind of uh, a visual white outline around them as if they are superimposed onto kind of life that's rolling behind them the way that you would get in an animated film. And I don't know if that's purely by accident, but actually that's a really nice quality. It gives the book kind of an animated film quality. It gives the book a quality of like a paper theater. And as someone who is kind of literally moving through, you know, a very important time in history, I think it works very well in the book's favor. Yeah, I think one of the, so there aren't too many characters in the book. There mm. are, we have his parents before the war and after the war. Um, and there's, a, there's, a, there's two or three friends, but the key thing was sort of this evolution of a 17-year-old to a 24-year-old. And, and, and did he wear glasses? He did in the first photo, but then the glasses sort of came off in, in the real photos. Um, but I sort of took an editorial decision to keep the glasses on, mm. just to, to keep... The, it, it's the simplicity and the consistency if you're having to draw this character as he's evolving and changing. So we... Um, you know, I suppose he was a sort of Harry Potterish character at the beginning, but yeah, um, I, I, I thought of, you know, it worked better him having glasses throughout the book. I didn't mind that it wasn't necessarily the most accurate description, but I didn't think that mattered. It was almost like you've got an actor mm. to play the role. Mm. And, and, and yes, that, that, that was very much um, at the forefront. Um, mm. And then in terms, you know, I, I asked about the process of kind of filleting uh, your grandfather's memoirs. How much did you have to cut out in order to make it manageable? Well, his memoir was very much the story of his life. So I mm. wanted it to be, you know, thinking of marketing it, it's the Second World War. Um, you know, there's, I wanted it to appeal to a broader audience. Um, and I suppose the, the book sort of kicks into a new direction when he joins the US Army. So there's, I said it into about four chapters, there's a lot to get through in, in a short period of time. But when he joins the US Army, um, I did my own research and, and, I, mm. and I found that there was a lot of other people that had written their memoirs 
he was probably ahead of his time. He'd written his memoirs in 94. Because um, you know, people of that generation, they fought in the war and then they just got on with life. They didn't talk about it very much. And mm. they started writing it maybe around 2000, sort of when people were sort of retiring and had a bit more time. But I, I managed to find quite a few memoirs of people he served with. And um, I look back at my grandfather's book and, and there's this sort of magical uh, scene where they, they're leaving New York Harbor on the 27th of August, 1944. They're setting sail from New York into, and I, and I, he didn't write about it hugely. He, he, I sort of, but then I, when I read the other people's memoirs, they gave me some scenes and mm. there is scenes in the book of the boat and which I, you know, so therefore I plagiarized, I am, you know, enriched. Mm. <laughs> so, so there are quite a few scenes that I was able to get that when I read the memoirs, that this is too good a scene not to <laughs> include in the book. But there isn't enough detail, so I need to do research to fill it out. Yeah, exactly, exactly. Yeah. So there's a scene about um, he's Jewish, and one thing I didn't realise is that any Jewish serviceman serving in the US, well, any serviceman serving in the US Army, they would have a dog tag, which we all know about. On the dog tag, it would have, there were three options. You could have P for Protestant, C for Catholic, or H for Jewish. And what if you were an atheist? Those were the three options. Right. <laughs> that was that. Pick a uh, Exactly. I don't think there was any, you know, not now where you'd have the whole, yeah. um, and, and uh, it doesn't, and um, if you were, so, and, you know, 98% of them would have been Catholic or Protestant. And um, if you had a Jewish, uh, or H for Hebrew as it was on your dog tag, and you were captured by the Germans, you would be in, you know, that's a not a good, a good, not a good place to be. So people were thinking, well, maybe you should get rid of your dog tags. But actually, if you got rid of your dog tags, you're in an even worse position because they consider you a spy. So you've had this sort of, see, this tension. It meant something to you. But on, on the flip side, actually having a dog tag was really important because it meant that you could be buried under the religion that you were. So, so, so anyway, I didn't, I, my grandfather didn't mention any of this. Um, you could, of course, be Jewish and elect to have Catholic or Protestant on it. So that would have been a dilemma to you know that. Um, but he didn't mention any of this. But somebody called um, Robert Kotlovitz, and he wrote his memoir, and he mentioned it. So we do have a scene in the book mm. where he's going through that dilemma. And I, and I felt like this is too good a, yeah. too good a story. I'm going to put it in. Um, and there was a few, few such mm. scenes of that in the book. Well, and again, you know, like I was saying earlier, um, of the scant number of World War II comics there are out there in terms of the Jewish experience, most of that just focuses on victims of the Holocaust and not actually Jewish soldiers. And so I think it's a very important uh, kind of history that you're adding to the canon, that people really don't know anything about the Jewish experience in terms of what was going on in the trenches. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, you know, there was um, a high proportion of, of Jews that fought for the Allies in, in World War II in both the British Army and the US Army and, and, and the other Commonwealth armies. Um, so yeah, it was, that was something else that was important. But I mean, the, the, the Jewish experience in World War II, you know, there was uh, you know, uh, a community in the UK and you'd fight for the British Army, but you would have family elsewhere. Mm. Um, you wouldn't know what was happening. And I do, um, one of the stories that I do try and get across in the book, and I'll, and I'll scroll 
sort of down towards it and I'll, um, is he he has a flashback mm. in in 1937 his father took him on a trip his father was whilst he was a Yorkshireman he'd actually been born in Latvia um, in a small town in Latvia he came over to live in Britain in the early part of the 20th century and he hadn't seen his family in maybe 25 30 years um, and in 1937, what would have been my great-grandfather, takes my grandfather, he says, we're going back to Latvia. Obviously, they didn't know war was going to break out. And mm. they go on this epic trip. And then they, they stop in Berlin on the way. And they get out and have to get their passports checked. And again, there's this frightening scene where they don't quite know what's going to happen. And again, that was something I had to get in the book. And, yeah. and he was... Uh, it actually, there was a scene in Mouse that sort of reminded me of that when they were taking the train and they saw the Nazi symbols outside the train. So that was sort of something I wanted to quite uh, evoke. Um, and he, he goes back, uh, uh, this was a sort of a late on decision. I had to put this flashback in because it wasn't sort of part of the chronology of it. He did mention it, but then I sort of felt this was actually a story that I wanted to mention. And, and um, he goes back to this, city in Riga uh, and, and he visits this is my, my great-grandfather and he visits his two brothers and we do there is a there is an essay at the back of the book unfortunately these two brothers died in the second world war fighting for the Russian army um, so and and the rest of the family um, that had mixed consequences some died in the holocaust some went to the gulags it was it was quite a, a, a an important story that needed to be told um, one thing is they didn't choose to come back to Britain. They, my my great-grandfather urged them to come back, but they actually thought they'd be safer in Latvia. Mm. But as you can see, I, one of the, my passions in the book was I, I wanted, you know, it, it, there must be about 17 or 18 different cities mm. at some point in the book. So here we are in Latvia. I, I wanted to make sure that that was, that was captured. And, and they even, he even talks about they went to a synagogue in place called Ludza and Ludza is this town that's a hundred miles outside of or 200 miles away from Latvia there's no Jewish people that live there anymore and I did some research online and there was a synagogue that had been recreated um, and I managed to find some images online I didn't exactly know if that was the synagogue they went to but it was pretty short and then again it was getting the details of the buildings and just making sure that that was captured in the book um, Mm. There was a scene, this is the, the synagogue had been restored um, in modern day. And again, I, I wanted to get this, capture this scene of, it was what was quite a moving scene of them, them going back to the synagogue. Mm. Brilliant. Um, so you have this first uh, graphic novel under your belt. I mean, even the rest of your grandfather's memoirs alone, I guess, could lead to a second or third volume. But what do you think you might do as a, as a follow-up? There's, I, 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 I have plenty of ideas. I, I think there's, there's just one story I just want mm. to, to quickly mention is when I did my research, and I, I want to, there was an artist called Victor Lundy. Now, Victor Lundy fought alongside my grandfather in the same unit. And in about five years ago, he donated his sketchbook to the Library of Congress. Mm. And in this sketchbook were hundreds of sketches my grandfather at war so i talk about this journey on the 26th of august 1944 mm. 
it was all sketched out. Mm. And this was this wasn't someone in the luxury of his studio. This was on his little notepad going out to war. And 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 Victor Lundy became a very famous architect after the war. He's actually still alive. He's going to be a hundred in February. Mm. Um, and you know, I, I told you about I was looking at memoirs, but this was rather than memoir. This was this is a visual memoir. Yeah. And and I I only discovered this late on. And I was like, this picture, I mean, it's a very simplistic picture, but I said, I have to get this in the book. And actually, I honor it with the front cover. I mm. felt like when I did the front cover of the book, these are two soldiers sort of looking out onto New York Harbor. Um, and, you know, I felt that Victor Lundy's sketch yeah. needed, needed to be honored. And, and there's a few mm. examples there on the deck. And, you know, I, I gave Brian the inspiration. Well, here. <laughs> Here we have it. We're not going to look at photographs anymore. Let's look at let's look at let's look at sketches. And again, you know, they all the dates match up. You know, they arrive, my grandfather says yes on the seventh of September we arrive, and Victor Lundy says yeah on the seventh of September we arrive. We're ready to go. And, and again, I thought well, you know, rather than you know, there's plenty of inspiration I could have found online, but where better to get the actual well, quite. as authentic as possible than than, than getting that using Victor Lundy's sketchbook and. And, and it's just such a phenomenal thing. And my grandfather then talks about meeting French farmers, and there he is, <laughs> meeting, meeting French farmers. So this was a really exciting sort of discovery mm. during the process. So I, you know, going back to your question about next, I, I really actually want to find out if there are more artists out there that did sketches during mm. the Second World War and, and whether they, something similar could be adapted mm. um, uh, for for um, you know other similar projects, I'm sure there are. Mm. Um, I know uh, so that that was what. But yeah, there there there. Uh, but one thing I've I've really discovered is, as I said, there's 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 a quite a lot of World War Two graphic novels, not as many as there should be. And I'm I'm you know I just want to take time to read them, really mm. get engrossed in them, and then if I find a gap, I'm mm. I'm gonna. Maybe well, try again. I mean, maybe a collection of stories of the artist at war. Yeah. And then in that Emmanuel Grieber style, you could actually incorporate the sketches in the page and then narrativize, graphic novelize uh, the story yeah, of the exactly. person who's doing the drawing. That would be a really interesting thing to do. Yeah. I mean, one of the interesting things, I mean, you know, so we always talk about the, the art, but it's not just the art, it's the lettering and the wording. Mm, and. Mm. The, the challenge I so so my grandfather wrote the book in a very much a, it was very much a memoir and he he wasn't a uh, a wordsmith as such in the sense that you know this was this was he told the story how it was um, so I had to think do I use the words that he's used do I edit mm. them and and that that was a challenge in itself I felt that. I wanted a lot of more contact. The feeling of that was reading like a book. Um, so I, there's a few speech bubbles in there, but it's mainly um, sort of blocks of text with with, with his actual memoir mm. uh, to it. Um, but there are one or two quite moving scenes where I do sort of say, actually, I'll put the art to one side, and we do, you know, put a page for. Um, yeah. You, know, you could, you know, that the reader can still read it, and 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 because you know, we do think, we always think about graphic, not just the art, but it's it's how, how best to 
to embed, you know, it's a story and how best to, to fit the words in. Absolutely. Um, so does anyone in the audience have any questions for Jonathan? That includes people online. If, uh, <laughs> um, so, yeah, Michi. you were just saying about the, the text. I think you said you were using the actual text, or were you were you paraphrasing at all, or? Yeah. So, 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 so I. Um, can I repeat it? Oh yeah, yeah, absolutely. Uh, so the question was, um, how often were you faithful to the text, and how often were you paraphrasing? I would say about seventy percent. I mean, I, 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 you know, when you when you get into the project of this magnitude, you know, I just thinking about the art and, and then you get into, oh crikey, I need an editor. And, you know, so I got someone that was, that was um, able to sort of make sure that it flowed grammatically. Um, but yeah, it's probably about 70%. But I, what I realized is that I, it, it's probably common sense, but you try and use as few words as possible to get, it, get across, you know, uh, so you try and edit it, edit it down, make it less verbose as, as you can. And as a graphic novel, a picture tells a thousand words. Exactly, <laughs> exactly. Simon. Jonathan, you're the publisher as well as this, yes? That's right. Yeah, so what are you doing to get it, how are you getting it into your hands and where are you selling it? So the question was, uh, what is Jonathan doing to get this into people's hands and how is he selling it? So I... You know, it's a very good question. When you, you publish a book like this, firstly, it's um, friends and family, and then you're thinking, oh, I want this to be a broader audience. And I'm a complete uh, newcomer to the publishing world. I decided, well, you know, try and get it out there. One of the things I've been quite fortunate about is, is, is I've got quite a bit of press coverage, which I'll, I'll flick to the, the end. And... and um, we started off with the Yorkshire Post. Now, there, there is actually, uh, it's quite fitting because there was an article um, uh, in the Yorkshire Post in 1945 because it did capture the imagination back home. They managed to get an article about this sort of holiday romance. So I wrote to the York, and, and then you know, getting it into the hands of the newspapers is, is, is not easy. You have to be persistent and write to them. And, and I was very fortunate that the the Yorkshire Post did a lovely um, feature on it um, in the summer. And um, so, yeah, that, that helped sort of publicise it. But you, you sort of look at your, your different markets and it appeals to different people. And, and, and it's, I, I've got coverage in a number of different places. And there's a number of Jewish papers um, that this has got coverage in. Um, the, the Times of Israel is a big paper where, where that, that helped getting coverage in the United States. My local paper, the Ham and High, um, but also um, there was two quite interesting stories. One, my artist, Brian Bicknell, his newspaper, and his, he wasn't particularly big on publicity, not because he doesn't want publicity and people to know about him, but he just doesn't have the time. So I said, oh, I'll write to your local newspaper, and we, we got a nice article written in the local paper in, in uh, Massachusetts, and, mm. and in the top corner. There was, a, there was a very sad story, and, it, and it's captured in the book of, my grandfather um, mentioned somebody called John Ebert, and John Ebert was a soldier from Ohio that he served with and was killed in November 1944. And um, I did some research about him, and um, 
there's an organization in America that was basically has a mission to publish an obituary of every single soldier that's been killed in World War II. So I, I wrote to them and said, well, here's, here's, here's a candidate for you, and, and, and somebody volunteered to do it. And, and then we, we approached that local paper in Ohio, and, and they did a feature as well. So it, mm. you have to be quite resourceful. So there's been the newspapers, and, and, and there's a lot in the, the, you know, the World War II books community has been one avenue, the graphic novel community. So there's a little bit of a Venn diagram. Mm. Um, and yeah, any, anywhere. So, but I, yeah, I've, I, I um, self-published through Amazon, um, which it was probably just the easiest, easiest route to market uh, for me as someone who's never done it before. Um, uh, one, one thing it probably I should call out is I'd done the book, the artwork, and I'd done the, had it all ready to go, but then actually you need a graphic designer. Hmm. And, and, and there's somebody I, I found um, in India, um, a very, very experienced graphic designer um, who, I, who I talked with. And actually, I, I sort of underappreciated the work that needs to go into it to package it together. And that, by that point, I hadn't got a title and, 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 and the fonts. And, and he, he actually did the lettering as well. And the lettering, it was all ready to go. I had my proof ready. And um, my wife saw it and she said to me, I'm sorry, but the, the wording isn't big enough. Huh. Uh, and it, I, it was a complete blind spot. So we did have to get it re-lettered. And because and my, my wife is very much into, she's an educator and, and, and a big fan of graphic novels for, 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 for making it more accessible, but you have to make the lettering bigger. And, and it's not always the case in graphic novels. Sometimes the lettering is a little bit too small. So mm. I wanted to make it be really easy on the eye. So hopefully people who read it will, will find it a, a very easy reading experience from that point of view. So yeah, there was a lot that, more that went into it than, than the, to, to actually get it out there. Mm. And in terms of finding an audience, can I tell a story of how we met? Yeah, no, absolutely. Yeah, that, I, I, think, I think that's a good story to tell. Well, it's just quite funny that um, when Cartoon County came back to the real world and we did the event at Waterstones, uh, Jonathan then sent me a, a DM on Twitter saying, Hi Alex, uh, great to find out that you're also in graphic novels. I'm doing one myself and I haven't seen you since school. And I'm scratching my head thinking, I don't know a Jonathan Sandler until I realised that he thought I was Alex Frith, who I'd interviewed at Waterstones. <laughs> so I then put him in touch with the other Alex F and said, actually, Perhaps, know, you know, it, we can help each other it out. Was, it, was, it was, it was, I, I suppose the, the first thing you, know, you do is you go to any old organization, say you've written a book. So my, my old school did a, um, a newsletter and they, they said, oh, John Zahn's written a book. And then the following month, lo and behold, somebody called Alex uh, Frith, Frith had written a graphic novel, uh, which is highly recommended. It's called Two Heads. And uh, I did, uh, I messaged you thinking you were Alex Frith. And you said, oh, and close. actually, it's close. The same you, letters, did, you, you, did do, you did do the, um, the book launch. And actually, one, what, what it, the other route to market is, is, is Twitter. And tw Twitter's obviously in the news at the moment for, for, for lots of reasons. But I've had quite a lot of chance meetings with people through Twitter. And this was a completely accidental. We met and, mm. uh, and I said, well, do you fancy a copy? I'll, I'll send you a copy of the post and, and let's keep in touch. And that's how we met. And, yeah. This is actually the first time we've, we've met in person. But Indeed. I think there are actually 
that what I found with Twitter is, is there is actually a lot of community there. Forget all the nasty stuff. I've, I've only experienced really, you know, there's a lot of people that look out for each other and you can, you can find people and pe little pockets of community. So anyone who's, who's, who's looking to um, uh, promote a book, you know, in the indie world, I, I do encourage that, um, uh, that, that you use Twitter and, and that community out there. There's so many people are willing to help you. Mm. Uh, and promote you or retweet you and uh, it's not going to make all the difference but it does it does it does give you a bit of encouragement mm. um, uh, out there yeah any other questions uh corin and then Je go on jacob <laughs> uh, from within the uh, your grandfather's memoir are there any notable stories that didn't make the cut so the question was within uh his grandfather's memoir were there any notable stories that didn't make the cut um, I think the short, if, if, if it, it was pretty much, I think his original memoir was his life story. Um, and the graphic novel, I felt, had to be World War II. I mean, that, 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 that's really the key. So anything that didn't make the cut, I decided I'd write as the epilogue. <laughs> so it is quite a long epilogue. And I, and I will caveat that. It's probably longer than most books, because it's my own book, I could do what I want. I, I, I um, am one of those people that whenever I watch a biopic, or I, I, um, I, I feel like I need to Wikipedia it and, hmm. and, and really understand what the true story was. Um, I sort of get a bit dissatisfied if I, and, and, and it's the same for graphic novels. If I read a graphic memoir, I want to find out well, what was the real story. I'm actually really into the making of it as well. And how, so I basically, anything that didn't make the cut for the graphic novel. It's more about his afterlife. And, and, and to sort of in summary, he, he was very much a, um, my grandfather was really inspired by 1940s New York. And he, and he ended up being a real lover of the theater. And he ends up founding the Leeds Playhouse in, in, in West Yorkshire. And he became a theater producer and he had uh, it was almost like a secondary career because he had quite a successful business career. But that that I write about a little bit towards the end of the book. But there is there is there is an anecdote. He, he became quite friendly with um, Roald Dahl. Uh, we all know the, the famous author, and Roald Dahl is was a, a famous provoca provocateur. I mean, he was he he he, he had a, it was a very um, argumentative character, a very successful storyteller, but it's also quite widely known that he was, he was an anti-Semite. Um, but my, my grandfather uh, was more of a business friendship. They, they, they were friendly through the theatre. And um, in about 1983, Roald Dahl was interviewed by the New Statesman. And um, he was asked, he basically said that Jewish people didn't fight for the Allies in World War II which we sort of think he knew wasn't the truth, but he was sort of doing it as a, you know, just to cause a stir and an argument. He was very eccentric. And um, this was pre-Twitter. So <laughs> there was no storm caused. That were, the article went out in the paper. Um, and um, about 30 years later, the journalist who wrote the article wrote about him again. And he said he was completely bonkers, Roald Dahl, and he wrote about and, um just before we were publishing the book, we were going through my grandfather's papers and we found he'd written down on a piece of paper that, his own story. And he said he was friendly with Roald Dahl, 
um, up until the point where he read this article in the New Statesman. And he said Dahl called him up the next day and um, just for a chat about something. And he said, how can, my grandfather said to Roald Dahl, how can a man of your intelligence be so stupid as to write that? And he slammed the phone down and never spoke to him again. Wow. And I just felt it was quite, so it did actually make the cut. It wasn't, it did, I didn't, not, not suitable for, for the graphic novel form, but it was a sort of epilogue. Um, yeah, as we go back to earlier, just saying that Jewish people did make quite a big contribution to the Second World War. And, and, you know, and it turned out that when I'd spoken to this uh, person who wrote the article in the New Statesman, he said that the Royal Dole Estate had now apologised for his anti-Semitism. And the reason was they just signed this big deal with Netflix. <laughs> it was a posthumous apology. So, was, uh, so Roald Dole, fantastic books, wonderful, but not as a person. He wasn't <laughs> necessarily the, the, the nicest person. <laughs> Uh, yeah, I just wanted to ask, you know, obviously this book is a labour of love and, um, you know, presumably you've invested a lot of your money in having it illustrated and so working with people. I mean, do you, is it, have you got a distributor for it and are you expecting it to make any money back or are you really sort of, it's nice. I, 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 I think anybody that does any sort of published work, whether they say it or not, they want to pub they want as many people as possible to, to publish it. And, and the, there's, there's a lot of pros and cons with Amazon on demand, but I think the advantage of it is it's maybe not necessarily that great commercially, but it is it does get you to an audience. So I've had convers you know the, when you produce a book, what you want more than anything is just to talk about it with people and to get it out there. And, you know, somebody bought the book. There was an article that went out on the Times of Israel website. And the next day, somebody said they bought it in California and they were writing their own graphic novel. And they emailed me and, and we've had a conversation. And, you know, Amazon doesn't tell you who buys it, obviously, but it does tell you which countries have bought. And it's, I've sold copies in Australia, in France, in I've sold probably as many copies in the United States as I have in the UK, and I suppose, um, yeah, I, I, yeah, I suppose the answer to your question is I, I want to get it out as much as possible. Um, I'm, but I'm, I'm not sort of a professional in that manner. I'm, I'm you know, sort of networking and want to do it organically, um, and uh, yeah, I, and, and I, I suppose it's at some point I do. Uh, want to do it again, uh, and, and, but it will probably be many years' time uh, before that happens. Mm. Well, volume two about your grandfather setting up the Leeds Playhouse, I think <laughs> would be fascinating in and of itself. Anybody else? There's a, a comment in the chat. Uh, Dean says, uh, my great uncle was a Jewish conscript and was present at the liberation of Bergen-Belsen. It shocked him so much that he would never speak about it. And I suspect many Jewish soldiers probably would forget, prefer to forget that time. I mean, I guess, you know, that's not something that you really touch on in the book, but I guess it is the time passing between people experiencing these things and then being able to talk about it in later life that it takes people decades to recover or maybe not at all that they feel they can yeah, share their so, stories. So I suppose without being too, you know, in terms of the mission of the book and, mm. and you know, obviously telling my grandfather's story, I had two very different missions. One is I wanted people to 
do their own research and inspire that you know it doesn't yeah if anyone's grandparents were involved in the second world war we were all, they were all you know, everyone's family were involved in some and 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 find those stories mm. um you know, it doesn't need to be the yeah, this wasn't a story about you know, it wasn't on the front yeah you know, it wasn't the front line in battle for for a few weeks but it wasn't there was just 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 do the research find out so i wanted and a lot of people have said oh my grandfather was in the war but he never spoke about it and I, 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 oh, I wish i'd asked him and so so that was a uh, yeah and, and there is a lot of research you can do so that was one major part of it and, and again, my, my, my other grandfather served in the royal army medical corps and went to Bergen-Belsen at its liberation. Mm. And he wrote his memoir in a very, and he never wrote about that because it was too troubling to write about. And I'm like, you know, that, that would have been you know, quite good material for, for something. You know. But you know, people, people found it difficult to write about it. And, um, and then my second mission, which is completely different, was to get people to read a graphic novel that have never read it before. Now, I have had, I can't, account the number of times people have read my book probably more amongst greater friends and family mm. and my network who said oh I've never read a graphic novel before I've never never you know because there, there is two sort of communities there's the graphic novel community but there's the sort of wider World War Two and I and I did think to myself you know the more conventional book and I don't want you know I'm still a huge fan of conventional books as well mm. um, they aren't always as accessible. If you write a sort of a 200-page book um, and you try and get it published, people are going to be, mm, yeah, I'll, I might buy it if I'm feeling nice and I'll just put it to the side. Whereas a graphic, it's just more accessible. So mm. I, I'm glad that so many more people have read and experienced the story. Experience, I feel, is the word well, uh, uh, that the would have done had it been a more conventional book. So. And, and people have said, oh, I might actually look into buying another graphic novel. So that was my, my other mission of it. Jonathan, thank you very much. Thank you for having me. Along to been talk great about fun. your work. Thank you. For more info about Jonathan Sandler's graphic novel, The English GI, World War II Graphic Memoir, please go to graphicmemoir.co.uk where you can find extracts from the book, as well as reviews from such titles as The San Diego Jewish World, The GB Cartoonist Club, The Jewish Quarterly, and History Book Chat. Also on the Graphic Memoir website, you can find Jonathan's newly started blog, which has info on such topics as how to adapt World War II memoirs and publicity tips for self-publishers, as well as links to where you can buy the book online. And for more info about Cartoon County, www.cartooncounty.com and the next Cartoon County event will be taking place in Brighton at the end of June. Between now and then, there are various other comic book events taking place in London and across the home counties. At the Cartoon Museum on Wells Street near Oxford Street Tube, they've had a new exhibition recently open called Norman Thelwell Saves the Planet. Best known for his horse cartoons, this exhibition looks at Thelwell's eco-friendly comics, showing that he was a cartoonist ahead of his time, dealing with such issues as pollution and conservation in the UK. Alongside this, there's a mini-exhibition looking at Super Marionation comics, based on the work of Jerry Anderson 
as featured in the comic Century 21, and that runs until Sunday the 11th of June. Alongside these two exhibitions, you can also see the Cartoon Museum's permanent collection, which is refreshed from time to time and showcases the work of numerous British cartoonists in the 21st, 20th, 19th and 18th centuries. Info about the Cartoon Museum, including opening hours and booking tickets for exhibitions and events, can be found at cartoonmuseum.org. Across town, I'm hosting a Q&A at Sci-Fi London, the London International Science Fiction and Fantastic Film Festival, at Rich Mix in Shoreditch on Sunday the 4th of June at 4pm. This panel will be looking at the connections between comics and film, and I'll be talking to Bimpy Aliyu, an independent comics creator who works for Industrial Light and Magic, having worked on such movies as Avengers Endgame and Jurassic World Dominion, as well as her own independent comics. Harriet Parry will be talking about her work in the costume design departments for Guardians of the Galaxy and The Dark Knight, and she's currently working on Robert Zemeckis' adaptation of Richard Maguire's fantastic graphic novel here, and co-creators of the new steampunk time travel graphic novel The Panharmonian Chronicles, Henry Chabane and Stephen Baskerville will be talking about this new work, with Chabane discussing his background in creating fantastic interiors for various hotels and restaurants around the world, which have also inspired some of the interiors found in the pages of the graphic novel. And Stephen Baskerville will be also talking about his work on such titles as Spider-Man, Transformers and Judge Dredd, as well as doing concept work on various Nintendo and PlayStation titles. This is a free event, but please do book tickets uh, in order to get a seat, as well as an email that includes a digital copy of the first chapter of the Pan-Harmonian Chronicles. Please go to sci-fi-london.com to book tickets, where you can also find info about the various premieres of sci-fi films taking place across London in the last week of May and first week of June. Panel Borders was recorded, edited and introduced by Alex Fitch, and is a Panel Borders production. You can find all previous episodes on our blog www.panelborders.wordpress.com and we'll be back on air on the first Wednesday in June. Until then, as ever, thanks for listening. This program has been brought to you by Resonance 104.4 FM. If you liked what you heard and want to support our work, please make a donation at fundraiser.resonance.fm.